Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Our guest today is Christopher Michaelides. Christopher has been on both sides of the startup equation as an early employee of a fintech unicorn and as a venture capital investor. Having been a part of two of Sydney's early stage VC funds, he is also trained as an intellectual property lawyer and has won over a dozen hackathons. Christopher is a graduate at the University of Sydney and is involved in Genesis startup ecosystem as a startup founder. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Hi, William. How are you going? Yeah, great. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? Sure. So I've, I came from a you know, traditional route. I started in uh, professional services. I worked at consulting firms like PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then I went into law. And when I was in law, I, I, I specialized in intellectual property and taxation, which is both the sexiest part of law and the least sexiest. <laughs> and then from there, I actually got exposure to the tech world through hackathons. So for those unfamiliar, essentially they're fast iteration competitions where you build some software and it, there's a social element to it. So it's, it's kind of kind of like the gateway drug, I guess, to the tech, the tech world. And then, you know, luckily me and some friends, you know, formed a team and we did well in those competitions. And then from there I had exposure to more tech companies, particularly in fintech and then also in uh, streaming. I see. So clearly being in a fintech is quite different to the traditional consulting and even as an intellectual property lawyer. I guess because that's where your background started, what allured you to starting something completely different with hackathons and fintech? With the, the, the fintech side of things, fintech inherently is highly regulatory. There's, a, there's lots of regulations, lots of rules. And when we were actually launched, we were uh, launching in, in Australia for the the fintech regulatory sandbox so uh, the sandbox was kind of a, it's kind of a concept that the regulators brought in that allowed you to operate within a you know a small field and it's kind of like an opportunity to try things out before you you got the heavy burden of all the regulatory uh, requirements we were actually operating before that that environment was made available and we were you know building partnerships with with the big banks and and customers, you know, before fintech was like you know the trend and the cool, you know, thing to go into. So you know, as a result of that, that required someone who was able to commercialize within a, you know a highly regulated area. And I guess that's what I was able to make that move from professional services, from the consulting and the legal side. I was able to bring those skills over, and then you know actually implement them in this you know quite a regulate regulated area. On the hackathon side of things. You know, for someone who has come from a traditional background in, in, in professional services, it's sometimes difficult to to communicate your your skills and your interest in tech directly from those positions to a role in, you know, one of the you know the big you know tech companies in Australia or overseas. And hackathons kind of act like a transition. You get to dip your toe in the water and see if uh, that's something that is interests you and something that you know you've got the aptitude for as well. So that, that's, it was kind of my test, but they're also extremely social. And for those who've never been to a hackathon, you don't have to be technical. You don't have to be a product person. I think you've just got to understand problems and, and you know, how to work towards a solution that's you know, useful. Could you tell me a little bit more about the process of problem solving? So you mentioned technical experience isn't needed. 
I think, I think ultimately, you know, a lot of people start from a solution and then try to retrofit it back to a problem. Uh, and that's probably the worst way of doing things. And I think ultimately problems come out of either user-borne problems or, you know, problems with the industry or, or a structural problem. But I think ultimately every startup book out there, every mentor in the startup ecosystem is going to tell you to focus on a problem first, really understand that problem before you uh, get the cart before the horse and, and, and start iterating on a, on a solution. Focus on problem first and understanding what causes the, that friction. Absolutely. So it's the, just the old adage of making sure that you fit the solution towards the problem, not the other way around. Totally. Since you've got experience working in a venture capital firm, what are some of the favorite startups that you've seen come across? Uh, some of the, the favorites, I think, um, are the kind of startups that we use every day. I think as a consumer, you know, you come across startups every day. And, and you know, for those, those who've come across software like Canva, you know, who have been in a pickle when they need a car at short notice, car next door, are, you know, startups where they're very consumer facing and they deliver a really great seamless service. So those, those are two, you know, startups that uh, are obviously at, at different stages, but they make everyone's life just a little bit easier, especially by making the solution seamless. In the case of Canva, there's a huge learning curve for Photoshop, and sometimes people need access to to stock footage, stock uh, photographs. Canva made that you know fully web based, allowed someone with who knew what they wanted, had had an aesthetic that they wanted to achieve, but maybe didn't have a familiarity with Photoshop tools or or even just the cost element of having a Photoshop license or Illustrator license. A lot of that can be achieved free or, or, or a low cost through through canva with you know no training and no uptake and that that producing that learning curve as a as a software product is is obviously going to attract a huge amount of users in the in the case of car next door i think that was born out of a change a, a change in uh, consumer expectations and the way that we used assets so in the case of cars, people living in the inner city where there's high density living, you know, places like Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, where, you know, there are Sydney's most dense areas of living. People, A, don't want to buy a car because they don't use it every day because they have the benefits of public transport, but also might not have access to a, a car spot as well in those areas. And Carnextall fits into that position of not only getting access to a car when you need it, but also people don't want to have as big of an impact on the environment and just have a car that sits in the driveway on the parking that obviously has a carbon footprint in its manufacture, but also in its operation. And people, you know, in this Airbnb world of shared resources, you know, the benefits of car next door is this multiple people can benefit from one car and, you, you know, allocate and fractionalize their use when and how they, they use it. Um, yeah. I think that's the benefits. Yeah, so just the idea is their problems that they're solving is just so multifaceted. There's cost, convenience, and a whole bunch of others that they're solving. And they do it really well. Like they, it's yeah. really easy to do. Absolutely. And so, Christopher, what are the biggest advice that you mentioned that you would want to impart to future entrepreneurs is the idea of looking for opportunities in structural changes. Could you elaborate more on what you meant by that? I think in the journey 
for a startup, I think ultimately what you're working on has to be something that's substantial enough to be worth your time. I mean, most people, when they're working on a startup, the question we used to ask at my time in, in VC was, you know, do you want to work on this problem for the next 10 years? Because you know, that's the kind of life cycle you need to have you know, a real stable, successful startup. And it has to be something that is an opportunity that can you know, grow and, and allow you to have a, you know, a big, substantial startup. So you know, answering your question about what is my number one advice, I'd say look for a structural change that allows you to find that problem. And that structural change can be something that is you know, like a legal or regulatory change, something that's that's changed in the market or the laws or the way that we do business. It could be a technological sh- change. So, you know, and the entry or a uh, commonplace technology that didn't exist before, but now it's really easy to access. Or it could be like a larger consumer trend that you now see an opportunity to actually enter that market or, or capture that, that, that new expectation of, of a consumer. Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, there are some changes that are just better than others in the startup world because they can generate a job for the next 10 years and it's what you can focus on really heavily and grow. How does someone identify what these structural changes are? Some are quite obvious, like regulatory changes, laws, and so on, while others, it takes a little bit of intuition to decide whether that can be a structural change. Is there a methodology? I think if we look at some of you know, some of the biggest structural changes that the Australian market has seen. For people who are interested in fintech, that the obvious easy answer would be open banking. So in July or so of 2020, the idea of open banking became a reality. And this allowed like, customers of big banks to actually request and share their, their data, their transaction accounts with other data recipients that were accredited. And you know, the way that you could identify that obviously open banking was going to be a big thing and when it would happen in, in the case of Australia is to look at, look at markets that Australia tends to follow in their technological advancement. So in this case, Australia follows often you, the UK and Britain for um, their evolution of their financial systems because it's, you know, an older, more you know, robust system and open banking had actually happened a couple of years before in the UK. So if you're looking for some structural change that might happen, you you could look at analogous jurisdictions where, you know, Australia or or the country that you're focused on usually takes a lead from. So if you had seen UK, if you had been to a holiday in the UK, or if you just followed the industry, you would have seen that they had gone through this monumental change and then, you know, predicted that, you know, suddenly there's going to be a review in Australia and, you know, although the big change happened in, in July 2020, there's a consultation process, there's, you know, stakeholders and industry talks that would have also flagged that, not that it was definitely happening, but it was something that was coming under strong consideration. So, you know, similar to open banking, the, you know, the veterinary industry has gone through a similar change with telehealth. And that's something that they went through a review and, you know, opened up to submissions from people about changes in how we would deliver vet services. And, you know, that had, had come through a long process. So whether it's following industry periodicals or talks or draft 
determinations or whatever it is, these big structural changes don't just come out of the blue. Usually when they're major, they actually engage the public and stakeholders. So keep keep your ear to the ground and, and, and sense when you see that those vibrations of change. I see. A couple of things. First, wouldn't you say that once news has reached the general public that it might be too late? It's kind of the, uh, there's a saying in finance where if your mom is talking about a particular investment, it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's t- I mean, actually, it reminds me of, for those who are living in Sydney, I often see those bank, not bank, I often see um, those advertisements on buses and bus stops, <laughs> and I know what you're laughing because you, you you recognize it as one. It's a big sign that says, "If if you see Bitcoin on a billboard or you see this Bitcoin ad on a bus, it's time yep. to buy." Right? Yep. And you know, it's probably not the greatest indicator, but I, like, I embrace what you're saying in that sometimes when it's too late, you miss the boat. And I think the best example of that is we had a look at a little bit of a mini structural event with the, the news media bargaining code that was initially floated. And it basically meant that, you know, companies would have to pay for their use of news outlet content. And, you know, Facebook and Google, there was a bit of jockeying for position back and forth. Facebook removed news outlets that were Australian from their news feed and back and forth Google were negotiating. Ultimately, I, I, I saw even on Twitter, there was some VCs in Australia calling on pitches for Australian-based search technology. But it, you know, at that point, it, it, it probably you'd miss the boat because something when, when something is so substantial like building a search algorithm or, or a, a technology company based on, on search, it te- probably takes a little bit more of a lead up I think sometimes, it, you know, if it happens so suddenly and you're worried about missing the boat, it's one of two things. It's either you're in the same boat as everybody else and, you know, the first wave has gone past all of you and you're looking to catch that second wave of interest and, you know, opportunity. And so you're actually on a level playing field as everybody else. But also there's going to be a number of of companies that are have already started building something and validating their product. And that structural event might just be the chrysalis to launch or to you know make that tipping point move where you you know go to the market or go to a supplier or go to a customer and say, look, this structural event is the reason why you need to become a customer today rather than in a year's time. Yep. So it's distinguishable from finance in the sense that this interest can be a good thing, especially when you're trying to convince customers or, you know, other sorts of partnerships. Yeah, totally. I mean, like if you look at things like a GDPR, which happened in Europe, and I'm sure we all got that, that request for uh, accepting of, of cookies and privacy in our browsers. So GDPR has led to a broader awareness for privacy concerns. And, you know, when we saw a change in the terms and conditions of WhatsApp, there was a huge migration from users from WhatsApp to Telegram and Signal. Or, you know, you see a similar thing in a change that happens first by one big milestone, like the change in the GDPR regulations for Europeans, and then a broader awareness and concern for how companies deal with our our data. And so it, it, it gets flagged earlier. And if you are really interested in that area, you can't help but you know think about it and be aware of it. it it's, it's very hard to ignore in an area that you're already interested in. 
these these sort of flags. Absolutely. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is, so you mentioned that one of the ways that you identify these big structural changes is to look at analogous jurisdictions. Wouldn't you say that this is just simply geographical innovation? I think, look, look, I think that's, I, I, I would embrace that. I think that's probably true. Um, I think there's going to be some, some things that you work on where it's just not possible in your area yet in, in Australia because the penalties of operating outside the ambit of the law is just too great um, that not even the startup mentality of, you know, uh, fake it till you make it or, uh, you know, move fast and break things is going to be a prudent way of, of working. But looking at these analogous markets and seeing the products that work well and didn't work well, especially when a, a UK consumer is pretty similar to an Australian consumer and see the, the kind of technology solutions that don't resonate with them or that do, it actually allows you to spot the pitfalls and avoid allocating resources to it. In Australia, you know, a good example of that is the, the one of the founders or the chairman of 86400, uh, which was one of the first wave of the neobanks that was acquired in Australia recently, this year in, by NAB, was from a founder in the UK who um, went through you know, establishing a bank or neobank in the UK, that was, I think, acquired as well. And then he came to Australia and followed his same playbook in Australia by launching 86400 and having that exit to NAB. So you know, I, I don't think it's something that an Australian can look at other jurisdictions and see, well, they, they're going through this change with open banking or they're going through this change with GDPR. Australia might be a prime area that is going to make those same structural changes that I can now position a startup based in Australia or another jurisdiction to do well in. Mm, I see. Is the process of looking for these structural changes, is it the same as traditional problem seeking? So you simply identify stakeholders, interview a bunch of them to develop an understanding of the problem? I think so, yeah. I think it's it's kind of like a framework to go about doing that. There's going to be a lots of people that just don't have, especially younger founders, like university um, students and, and sort of young people who don't even have that scope of reference yet because their professional career hasn't started yet. So they're very limited to their exposure. And so ultimately, I think you know, being aware of these larger macro changes is a good way to to actually have your entree into that market where otherwise you know your professional qualifications or experience wouldn't open those doors for you so you know you can go and speak to a whole bunch of consumers and end users but you might also benefit from speaking not just to the end user and consumer but an expert in that field or someone who is an industry you know, mover and shaker that can give you that point in the right direction based on, you know, those, those structural changes that they get exposure to that you might not have. You know, you, you might not be in that decision-making room at that stage of your, your career or your professional development where they are talking about, you know, things like changes in privacy or the changes in the media code or changes in how vets deliver their services via telemedicine or, you know, so... 
since they have that opportunity to be in those rooms because they're more experienced, sometimes speaking to not just the end user consumer, but someone who's a, an expert in that field who won't necessarily be buying your product or being a customer of your product, but can give you that, that insight that can make your product you know, substantive enough and, and kind of predict that early wave so you can ride. Absolutely. I get your point because when you talk to just the end user, they weren't necessarily in the decision room, whereas the expert is and can give you insight before the wave has even began sometimes. Yeah, I think so. Do you think that problems that aren't necessarily big structural changes shouldn't be capitalized upon by startups? So just these mid-structural changes or even just small problems? I think sometimes small problems and or smaller structural changes are still opportunities as well because it's very difficult to actually evaluate the value of a startup in its early stages. And, and most startups will change their form and evolve from what their initial problem was until the to what they kind of became a you know a scale up or a, you know, a sustainable company. But it, it kind of gives you that that foothold to climb up that sort of climbing wall. And obviously the the more significant the structural change will attract more competitors as well. So although the foothold would be larger for you to place your foot to climb up that wall, there's going to be a lot more people on the wall as well that risks you falling down. So sometimes maybe, you know, focusing on a smaller mid-structural change or a smaller problem is an opportunity because some of the larger players won't be particularly attracted to it. And you can actually create that market with it. I mean a lot of these structural changes can also be about the availability of you know tools like technology tools so you know artificial intelligence ai is, is hugely popular and a good friend of mine once said that he kind of realized some of the best developers in the world some of the best engineers are working on artificial intelligence and that's a good thing but it also means that the best developers and engineers are working on artificial intelligence. So if you have an artificial intelligence startup, not only are you vying for the most in-demand developers, but also you're competing against the, the creme de la creme of, of engineers. And sometimes there's, there's other opportunities that are just as ripe in less competitive areas. And, and sometimes the hottest trend you know, is, is not the, the one that actually can produce the most fruit for you in that case. Definitely. I understand your point. So it's just a constant balancing act. So if you want to dabble in the mid-small structural changes, it just means that you would be pretty dominant in that market. You wouldn't have to worry so much with competitors, whereas if you go for these large changes, you're, of course, going to be you know, dabbing on with, with these larger players. Sure. I mean, like, look, a good example is there's been a recent, somewhat recent structural change in the art world and with the, the kind of growth and interest in NFTs. So um, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. And essentially, they're a way for a digital artist to sell their digital art essentially on a platform like the blockchain and allow them to benefit not only from the initial sale of their art, but then be able to generate an income from taking a clip from all subsequent resales of that artwork. So, you know, we've seen platforms like Zora take that model, which is a small change in the way people sell art, but has, can fundamentally make a big impact to the ability of an, 
an artist, a digital artist, to actually survive and 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 prosper on the sale of their art. And and you have people now like in the music field being inspired by the idea of NFTs and selling music videos and, and audio through that platform as well. So people have been selling their art in you know traditional fields and galleries and through online marketplaces. But this idea of creating this NFT marketplace, which is transparent and allows an artist to benefit from subsequent resale of their art to others, like you do on Zora, can can actually open up a huge opportunity for a startup like Zora, like Nifty, to really shift the art market to an artist-led, more transparent system of ownership and and support of the, uh, the art industry. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Genesis of Startups, Christopher. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me, William. Where can the audience go to connect with you? I think probably the best way is um, to catch me on LinkedIn. It's the you know the usual LinkedIn URL and slash Michaelides. So it's slash M I C H A E L I D E S. That's the the best way. Amazing. To our audience, I hope that you found it incredibly valuable. What we talked today about making these big structural changes and how to identify them. If you'd like to learn more about the genesis of startups or about Christopher, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time.